Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You asked for it, and we're doing it. Today's episode is a combination of two requests. You ask for more super short science fiction stories, and you ask for longer episodes of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. So, why not both? We've got nine kinda short sci-fi stories for you in an episode that's almost two hours long. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. The Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is heard in thousands of cities and towns around the world. Chicago, Illinois, Manchester, UK, Hillsboro, Oregon, Lexington, Kentucky, Frankfurt, Germany, and Belfast, Northern Ireland, to name a few. We are thankful for you, and we'll continue to bring you one great Lost Sci-Fi short story after another every week. Special thanks to Love the Vibe for yet another five-star rating and awesome review on Apple Podcasts. My Two Cents. Scott Miller lifts everything to a higher, more artistic level. Probably would elevate the humble phone book to Shakespearean heights. Many thanks. Thank you, Love the Vibe. We appreciate you. If you haven't already left a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would. And for our Spotify listeners, if you'd give us a five-star rating on the Spotify app, if you think we deserve it, that would be awesome. We have nine kind of short stories for you today. We'll kick it off with a story from Weird Tales, a magazine of the bizarre and unusual in July 1938. Let's go to page 91 for Escape from Paul Ernst. He had the craziest form of craziness I've ever seen. 
Of course, I hasten to add, I hadn't seen much. I'd been through an asylum once before, as now to get a story from my paper on treatment and conditions of state inmates, and that was all. On that former trip, I'd witnessed nothing like this, nor had I till now on this trip. The man didn't look crazy. So often they don't. He was a medium-sized chap with gray in his hair and a look of sadness on his thin, mild face. A look of sadness and determination. Neatly dressed, precise of movement, he was very busy in his cell. He paid no attention for a while as the guard and I stood at the barred door and watched him. He was building something. He would pick up a tool, adjust it carefully, work with all the delicacy of a watchmaker for a moment. Then he would lay the tool down and pick up a gauge and check his work, all very accurate and careful. The only thing was you couldn't see what he was building, and you couldn't see any tools, nor gauges, nor workbench. There was nothing in the cell but the man and a bolted-down cot and chair. Nevertheless, the fellow was extraordinarily industrious. He would seize a non-existent tool, examine it with a frown, and then use it on thin air, after which would come the inevitable measuring movements. It certainly looks, I said in a low tone to the attendant, as though there should be something there. The attendant grinned and nodded, and I continued to watch, fascinated. You could follow the man through his whole box of tools from his rational movements. Now he was boring a hole, obviously a very small hole, with a tiny metal drill equipped with an egg-beater handle. Now he was just touching a surface with a file. Now he was sawing something else, after which he took the sawed part from an imaginary workbench and tried it in its place, whatever and wherever that was. I got still another glimpse of unity of effort as I watched him. Each little period of accurate workmanship ended with a trip four steps to his left, to a corner of his cell which was bright with sunlight. There, his motion said, was the thing he was working on. There was the object, slowly growing bit by accurate bit, which he was making and assembling. It was uncanny. There simply ought to have been something there, a cabinet, chair, what not. And there wasn't. The man slowly screwed an imaginary part to an imaginary hole, then laid down his imaginary screwdriver and walked to the door, for the first time acknowledging our presence there. Hello, Nick, he said to the attendant. His voice was as mild and as sad and as oddly determined as the rest of him. Hello, said the attendant affably. His good-natured, broad face turned from the man in the cell toward me. Meet Mr. Freer, Mr. Gannett. Mr. Freer's with a newspaper. Oh, said Gannett politely. He put out his hand so that I could shake it if I reached through the bars of his door a little. I hesitated, then grasped it. He didn't look dangerous. How are you doing with your, what is it, Gannett? The attendant said, nodding solemnly toward the bright corner where lay the object of the man's attentions. Pretty well, said Gannett. This darn floor isn't quite level. It's three thirty seconds of an inch to the foot off. I have to allow for that in every line and angle. 
and it makes it needlessly difficult. What is it you're building? asked Nick wheedlingly. You won't tell any of us, but won't you tell Mr. Freer for his newspaper story? There it is, shrugged Gannett, pointing to the corner. See for yourself. I stared involuntarily at the corner. Then, feeling like a fool, back at his mild, sad face. Was there a ghost of a twinkle in his gray eyes? Or was it my imagination? I couldn't tell. I was beginning to feel a little crazy myself. We walked away. The big library and lounging room where the almost cured could sit and read was left for me to see. But I looked around without much interest as we passed through. I kept thinking of Gannett. Has he been going through that set of motions very long? I asked the attendant. He started right after he got here, said Nick. That was a year ago. He came here raving, trying to fight free and get back to the house where he lived with his son and daughter-in-law. There was something in his room he had to get, he said. Then he calmed down and next day began going through the routine you saw. Some days he works for only a few hours. Sometimes all day long and up until lights out at night. The way he putted around that corner made me think I was off myself for not seeing something there, I said. It was amazingly realistic, as though you could surely feel what he was working on, even if you couldn't see it. Has anybody ever felt around that corner where he spends his time? Hey, boy, said Nick, easy now. Pretty soon we'll be sending a wagon for you. But has anybody? I persisted, smiling. No, that's the one thing that brings out Gannett's kink. If anyone gets too close to that corner, he gets quite violent. So we don't even clean there. We're trying to cure these folks, not upset them needlessly. We went out the massive door of the main building, where a stalwart attendant eyed us sharply. There were nicely kept grounds, and then a high fence with inward slanting barbs on its top. You don't want anybody to escape from here, do you? I said, nodding toward the heavy door and the high fence. Nick grinned. Nope, and nobody ever has. Or ever will, I reckon. See you in church. But he saw me sooner than that. I kept thinking of the spare, mild-mannered man with the sad, determined eyes all evening after I'd handed my story into the paper. I kept thinking about him next morning and next afternoon saw me at the asylum again, standing in front of Gannett's barred door. He was as busy as he had been yesterday, but his activities seemed more mental than physical today. He would stand in the center of his cell, hand-rubbing jaw, while he stared at the sunny corner. Then he would walk to the corner and touch a spot in midair with an inquisitive forefinger. Then he would step back and survey the atmosphere again, eyes running slowly up and down, as though over the lines of a quite tangible thing. Finally, he took something out of his pocket and walked with a more decisive air to the corner. I saw his hands move close together, for all the world as though he were adjusting a micrometer or other delicate measuring device. He applied his hands to the questionable point in nothingness. As he had done yesterday, he paid no attention to observers at his door at first. But finally he spoke, without looking up from his task. Hello, Freer. Hello. 
I said. Gannett had an unimpaired memory at any rate. Come for another story? In a way, I evaded. He shook his head, meanwhile stepping a foot to the right and staring critically at nothing. I don't see how you stand it. Stand what? Your work. The madness and despair of humanity. That's your stock in trade. You deal in war and famine and flood, in social injustice and political and civil brutalities. They're the intimate facts of your life. I don't see how you can live among such things. I can't even read about them. I stared at him. I'd never met a man who seemed less crazy. Whether you face the facts intimately or detachedly, I said, they are still facts, and they are still there. You can't avoid them. But you can. At least I can. And I'm going to. I'm getting out of all this. He squatted on his haunches and began running his hands slowly over space, up and down, then horizontally. He straightened and repeated the process. I'll swear I could make out what he had in his mind. It was a sort of chair with a very high back and unusually high arms. Just as I had decided this, he sat in it. You've seen stage tricksters sit in chairs with arms folded when there are no chairs there to sit in? Well, this was the same. I gaped at Gannett, sitting in thin air. Not an impossible stunt, but always an arresting one. He got up and came to the door. I can't take life as it's lived today, Gannett. A weakness, no doubt. But there you are. So you're getting out of it? I nodded. So I'm getting out of it. It's not for nothing that I am a mathematician and an inventor. What a shame. I almost said it out loud, but didn't. I'd conceived a positive fancy for the sad-faced Mr. Gannett. He stared at me quizzically. You needn't hunt up Nick, he said. I'm not hinting at suicide. It's a more literal escape, I mean. Escape? With these barred doors? The high wall outside? Oh, walls, bars. He waved his hand, dismissing them. He walked back to his sunny corner and resumed his critical ocular and manual examinations of nothing. You may have another story tomorrow, Freer he said mildly. And then he turned his back, thereby dismissing me as he had the walls and bolts of his confinement. I hunted up Nick on the way out. I felt like a traitor, but I knew it was for my new friend's own good. Gannett's talking of an escape, I said. Nick's customary grin appeared on his broad face. Forget it. He's handed out that line before. Nobody could get out of here. He walked to the high gate in the fence with me and waved as I got into my car. I wasn't coming back anymore. I didn't want to see Gannett again. He was such a nice little guy. But next noon saw me knocking for admittance a third time, summoned by a call from Nick. Got an exclusive for you if you want it, he said. An escape. I don't know that it's very important to you, but we've never had one before. That might make it worth a couple of inches. Escape? I said. Yeah, your man Gannett. So he did it. But how? Nick grunted. Suppose you tell me, 
In the night? I asked. He shook his head. A little while ago, in broad daylight. He was seen in his cell at ten. An hour later, the room was empty. He was gone. But he couldn't have simply walked out of the place in broad daylight. No, said Nick. He couldn't. Was his door unlocked? It was not. It was locked from the outside when we came to investigate the report that he was gone. His window bars are all right, too. You've searched the grounds? Of course. He isn't in them. He isn't in any of the buildings. Nobody saw him after eleven o'clock. He's just gone, with his cell still locked so even a monkey couldn't slip out. You must have some idea how he got away. No idea, because it can't be done. Only it was. How am I going to get a story out of that? I asked. How in thunder would I know? That's your worry. I put a cigarette between my lips, unlit, because smoking wasn't permitted here. What in the world do you suppose he thought he was building? I mused. Nick snorted. I don't suppose anything about it. If I did, I'd be as crazy as he was. Well, there's your exclusive, if you know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with it. So I finally handed it in as it stands now. This very story, in fact. And the little man with the big visor at the editor's desk promptly handed it back. Not that I'd blame him. Nobody ever saw Gannett again. Nobody ever thought of him again, I guess. Except me. I had a rush of curiosity to the head a few days later and went to his cell armed with a level and a steel rule. The floor of the barred cubicle Gannett once occupied is three thirty-seconds of an inch off level. Now, how do you suppose he could have determined that without tools of any kind to aid the naked eye? Our next story was written by one of those guys we know almost nothing about. In addition to six short science fiction stories in the 1950s, Robert Zacks wrote eight TV episodes for seven shows in the 1950s. From Startling Stories magazine in May 1952, the first story ever published written by Robert Zacks from Outer Space. The grizzled old space veteran leaned back in his chair and stared up through the transparent dome. In the black sky, myriad white specks gleamed without twinkling, their light unbent by atmosphere or dust. The steady pulse of the airmakers kept rhythm with the heartbeats of the young men seated in a semicircle, listening with glistening eyes to these ancient tales of an earth they'd never seen the home of their species. They stared hungrily at the old man's face. There was a silvery spot on the chin where Venusian fungus had nearly gotten into his bloodstream and it had to be burned away. Over one eye, an eyebrow was gone, replaced by scar tissue, grown on a planet at the other end of the galaxy where the light of enormous fireflies wasn't cold as on ancient Earth but searing with heat. Imagine, they marveled, such weak flame in fireflies. Not weak, corrected the old man, just different. Those insects on earth didn't have to fight off intense cold. 
They had a much thicker atmosphere and were close to the sun, and they didn't feed on alcohol. The young men's eyes glittered. They were an odd group, small, most of them, none over five feet five inches, and pale, unlike the old man who was bulky around the shoulders and had skin virtually leathered by various radiations and temperatures and winds. Each day this group waited hungrily for the old man to come and talk to them. The stories he told were the breath of life to them, and of all the tales of adventures in the far ends of the universe, the one that was most repeatedly called for was the story of what had happened to Earth. Tell us about Earth, said one of them now, in a low voice. About how great we were, said the old man. About what love was like. About homes and children. And how a man went to work in the morning at tasks of his own choosing. Or, no, about what happened, you know, at the finish. The old man looked up again. His eyes were dreamy. Earth, he said softly. Earth. I've been through the galaxies these last forty years, and I've seen planets by the thousand, and there never was one like Earth. Tell us, they said, each in urgent differing words, but all with the same tortured look. Tell us about what went wrong. I've told you that a hundred times he said, but they wanted it again, like a man who relives an incident to examine each moment with incredulity, as if in hope that it will fade and not have happened, as if in unconscious attempt to move sideways from that point into another time-stream probability where a different course of action will be true. All right, said the old man. The first they had heard of the strangers from outer space was when the new ultra-shortwave frequencies were used. Professor Kennicott of Palmyra University was the first to find how to generate and control them. He tried to transform the wavelengths upward to arrange either auditory or visual, but for some reason power was lost in the process. Apparently, he gave them a sufficient jolt with extra voltage, however, because they were picked up by the strangers in outer space as a signal. The heaviside layer did not stop these wavelengths. Professor Kennicott was startled one day when he heard, or thought he heard, a soundless voice in his mind. It said, Interesting. We didn't know there was life on your planet or in your solar system. Professor Kennicott shook his head and looked around. Nobody was in the laboratory. Of course, said the voice. We detected atomic radiations from the area, but Zetol thought it might come from your son. Tell us, please, are you a grade three society? My God, muttered Professor Kennicott. I'm having hallucinations. There seems to be some difficulty establishing telepathic communication, came the puzzled thought. And then, after a pause, could it be we're in communication with creatures of zero grade? Another thought from elsewhere answered. And yet Professor Kennicott, somewhat, was tuned in. Impossible. 
The signal picked up was very close to telepathic frequency. It wasn't until two days later that Professor Kennicott discovered that he wasn't the only one who had experienced the auditory hallucination. The entire college was babbling about how Professor Johnson had come running out of the chemistry lab, which was two doors away from physics, holding his head and babbling nonsense. Professor Kennicott made a beeline for the hospital and had a quiet discussion with Professor Johnson, a discussion which is now historic. They discovered that not only were both their IQs over 180, but that both of them, sitting together discussing the matter, were simultaneously getting new messages, which nobody around them was receiving. It wasn't long after that, of course, that many of the most brilliant men on earth were reporting the same hallucinations. And as news of it spread, it became obvious that not all could be insane, in exactly the same way, with the same thoughts. Excitement and puzzlement ran tremendously high, because although these intellects of Earth could receive telepathic messages, they were not advanced enough to send. They only knew what was being messaged to them, and this continued to be so until feverishly working physicists pinned down the telepathic wavelength mechanically. That was when conversations were begun, and the entire Earth was able to listen in by translation and regular broadcast. The discussions did not go well. The beings from outer space would not answer questions. They only asked. The first thing, apparently, that made them cautious was the first official question from Earth. How is it that we understand your thought, even though many of our scientists speak different languages? The whole world awaited the first answer. None came. There was a silence lasting four hours. Then came a message. Your question indicates you may be a low grade of developed life. We shall investigate and fit you into our needs according to your capabilities. A thrill of horror went around the world. What kind of monsters were these? What would they do? The uproar that ensued was full of frantic military preparations. Bombs were readied in the atomic planes. Rockets were raised in their cradles adjustable to any orbit. Unfortunately, nobody thought to conceal this. And some fool had failed to shut off the telepathic wavelength. One morning, the world awoke to a non-electrical society in which nothing electrical would work. We have put a field of force around your planet, came the message. There must be no violence. Be not afraid. We come as friends. We will appear now and investigate. Be calm. The leaders of each nation spoke to their people, and the world waited in tense silence. One day an enormous sphere appeared and landed. The creatures that emerged couldn't be clearly discerned because they were in spacesuits, which gave them comfortable air pressures and what was to them breathable atmosphere. They were four-legged creatures, but could walk on two if necessary. A delegation of picked dignitaries started to show them our world, our customs, the way we dressed, what we lived in, 
what we ate. Almost immediately, the strangers turned and left our world. Within two days, Earth was in bondage. The old space veteran stopped. He looked around at the tense faces. We found out later, he said. It was the banquet they watched on a film that did it. There was a scene where a waiter brings in a whole roast pig with an apple in its mouth, and then it's eaten. All the boys drew a deep, horrified breath. The old man nodded heavily. Well, he said, how were we to know these beings from outer space had evolved from pigs, or creatures very similar? He sighed and stood up. Well, maybe in fifty years they'll feel we're advanced enough for freedom. He smiled. I'll leave you to your telepathy classes and conditioning. He moved toward the door, and a portion of glass wall slid aside to let him through. But before he exited, he turned and said softly, Now, don't let it get you, boys. Being exhibited in a zoo isn't too bad. Serve your time and you'll get servant status like me and get out into space. He waved and walked out through the spectators gathered around the glass cage. They moved aside to let him through, staring at him with brilliant brown eyes, their snout-like noses twitching in sympathy and kindness, their pig-like faces gentle with the expression a man gives a trained dog. August William Durleth grew up in Sauk City, Wisconsin. He wrote his first fiction story at 13. He loved reading and went to the library three times a week, saved his money to buy books, and his personal library exceeded 12,000 volumes later in life. His stories were rejected 40 times over three years before he sold Bat's Belfry to Weird Tales magazine in 1926. Burkett's Twelfth Corpse can be found in Strange Stories magazine in August 1940. Darkly swirling waters covered all that remained of a hideous secret. Let's turn to page 67 for Burkett's Twelfth Corpse by August Derleth. The wall of hate that stood between the two old rivermen, Fred Burkett and Hank Room, had grown from a strange and gruesome rivalry. Finding bodies of persons drowned in the Wisconsin River at Badger Prairie. At the time of the tragic drowning of Bud Enters, the rivermen were tied. Each had found eleven bodies in the past forty years. It was said by each of them, and repeated in Badger Prairie, that Bud Enter's body would decide the contest. The sympathy of Badger Prairie was with Burkett, a kindly old man, as opposed to the sullen surliness of Room, who was somewhat younger. Burkett had always joked about his odd luck at finding bodies in the river, and still looked upon his almost uncanny way of knowing where the bodies had been taken by the swift current as more amusing than not. But Room had brooded upon his rival's luck ever since Burkett had earned a $500 reward 
for finding the corpse of a young student who had fallen into the Wisconsin while drunk, almost a decade before. Room made no effort to conceal his violent hatred for Burkett, nor could Burkett keep down his dislike for his rival. Bud Enters was drowned on a warm night in July, and twenty boats put out from Badger Prairie within an hour after he went down. Fred Burkett and Hank Room were among them. Both men headed downstream, knowing by long past experiences that the swift current in mid-channel, where the youth was drawn under, would quickly roll the body below Badger Prairie toward the Long Clay Riverbank southeast of the village, which was locally known as the Yellowbanks District. Toward dawn, Fred Burke had found Bud Enner's body, rolling along in shallow, swift water, crossing a sandbar just above the Yellowbanks. The moon was out, and he had no difficulty seeing the body, which he immediately caught with a boat hook and secured to the boat without removing it from the water. Then he edged his boat out of the current and headed swiftly upstream. Just where Heine's slough enters the Wisconsin, he met room. He could not help boasting. Just made my dozen, he called to Hank in a gruff yet faintly triumphant voice. Room turned his boat and swung across current toward him. Burkett rested on his oars. Unaware of the fury that consumed his rival, he went on. Well, we couldn't both find him, he said agreeably. Let the best man win, I always say. He smiled in the satisfaction of feeling himself the better of the two. Room said nothing. He was looking cautiously upstream and down his eyes scanning the surface of the water for sight of any boat, his ears waiting to catch any sound that might indicate the approach of other searchers. The two boats lay in quiet water, away from the current. Whether or not Burke had heard room loosen and jerk out one oar is problematical. He turned toward room just as the oar descended and dealt him a glancing blow on the side of the head. He toppled from his boat, turning the vessel with him. With a savage lunge, Room pushed Burkett's boat out of reach of the older man, just as he came coughing and gasping to the surface of the water. With another quick movement, Room detached Enter's body from the overturned boat. He made no attempt to catch the body, knowing that the current would not carry it from this quiet water, and he could always return and find it. Then he shot away, unmindful of Burkett's despairing cries, secure in the knowledge that Burkett could not swim very well. A little way upstream, he paused and listened. There was no sound from below. Burkett had gone down. A cunning smile touched Room's lips. Edging the boat into shallow water, he let himself fall fully clothed into the river, wetting himself thoroughly except for his torn hat. This he threw into the bottom of the boat to give it the appearance of having been hastily torn away from his head and thrown there. Then he got back into the boat and rowed furiously toward Badger Prairie. The circle of boats was now further downstream, and he did not have to row up quite as far as he drifted down. He timed his entrance well, for Enter's cap had just been found along shore, and the searchers were excited over their find. Quite suddenly, 
he shot from under the bridge into the yellow glow of lanterns held high above the water. Burkett's gone under, he shouted frantically. His boat tipped just above the yellow banks. Anyone who might have doubted his cries was easily convinced by his bedraggled appearance. It did not require his explanation that he had gone into the water after Burkett to explain the wetness of his clothes. He told hastily that the old man fought hard, that he had had to hit him, finally, and had reluctantly let him go in order to save himself. He led the rowboats to a spot a hundred yards above the entrance to Heine Slough, where in the quiet water the two bodies still lay. Room was enjoying the irony of the knowledge that his twelfth body would be that of his old rival. He broke into speech again, excitedly telling about the accident, and explaining that the boat had long since gone downstream, swept away by the powerful current in which it had tipped. He pointed out approximately the place where the accident had occurred, and went glibly over his story a third time. Then he left the searchers and pulled into the current toward the dark waters where Burkett had actually gone down. That much Badger Prairie was later able to piece together. What happened after that is more obscure and fraught with horrific suggestions. It is certain that Room went downstream, and equally certain that he seemed to be heading for Heine Slough, though one or two disputed this point later. Despite the moon, it was difficult to observe Room's progress downstream, for he was soon lost in the dark, heavy shadow on the quiet water surrounding the slough's junction with the river. In the babble of sound made by the searchers above the slough, Room might have called for some time and not have been heard. At any rate, during a lull in the conversation, someone picked up the sound of frantic calling. Everyone stood and listened. Once again came a sharp call, in a voice which was immediately identified as Hank Room's. The call was heavy with horror and fear. Then another call began to sound, but was abruptly stopped, almost as if it had been rudely shut off by a hand clapped over the lips through which it came. The boats immediately pulled away toward Heine's slough. At first there was nothing to be seen except the bottoms of two overturned boats, one of which was Room's, the other Burkett's. Then someone saw the body of Enters against one bank, apparently just washing up from deep water. Quite near it, partly submerged, they found the bodies of Hank Room and Fred Burkett. Room was dead, yet he had not drowned. He had been strangled, for when the horrified searchers pulled him out of the water, they found Fred Burkett's dead fingers sunk deep in the flesh of Room's neck. Burkett had found his twelfth corpse. Salvatore Albert Lombino, a.k.a. Ed McBain, better known as Evan Hunter, has been on the podcast before. He wrote one of my favorites, The Plagiarist from Rigel Four. Only one question seemed important in this huge space venture. Who was flying where? We'll find our story on page 57 of the May 1952 issue of 
If Worlds of Science Fiction. Welcome Martians by Evan Hunter. The only sound was the swish of the jets against the sand as the big ship came down. Slowly, nose pointed skyward, a yellow tail streaming out behind the tubes, it settled to the ground like a cat nuzzling its haunches against a velvet pillow. Dave Langley peered through the viewport. I feel kind of funny, he said. A tremor of excitement flooded through Cal Manor's thin frame. Mars, he whispered. We made it. Gently the fins probed the sand, poking into it. Cal cut the power and the big ship shuddered and relaxed. A huge metal spider with a conical head. Cal peered through the viewport his eyes scanning the planet. Behind him, Dave shrugged into a spacesuit, gathered up his instruments. I'll make the tests, Dave said. Keep the starboard guns trained on me. Cal nodded. He walked Dave to the airlock and lifted the toggles on the inner hatch. Dave stepped into the small chamber and Cal snapped the hatch shut. He walked quickly to the starboard guns, wiggled into the plastic seat behind them, and pitched his shoulders against the braces. Outside, like a grotesque balloon, Dave stumbled around on weighted feet, taking his readings. What's out there? Cal wondered. Just exactly what? He tightened his grip on the big blasters and trained the guns around to where Dave puttered in the sand. Dave suddenly stood erect, waved at Cal, and started lumbering back toward the ship. Cal left the guns and went to the airlock. He stepped into the chamber, closed the toggles on the hatch behind him, and twirled the wheel on the outer hatch. He was ready to move back into the ship again when Dave stepped through the outer hatch, his helmet under his arm. It's okay, Cal. Breathable atmosphere. And the pressure is all right, too. Cal let out a sigh of relief. Come on, he said. Get out of that monkey suit. Then we'll claim the planet for Earth. They went back into the ship, and Dave took off the suit, hanging it carefully in its locker. Both men strapped on holsters and drew stun guns from the munitions locker. They checked the charges in their weapons, holstered them, and stepped out into the Martian night. It was cold, but their clothing was warm and the air was invigorating. Cal looked up at the sky. Phobos! he said, pointing. And Demos, Dave added. I can Mike. Yeah, Dave smiled. How do you feel, Dave? Cal asked suddenly. How do you mean? Mars, I mean. We're the first men to land on Mars. The first, Dave. They were walking aimlessly, in no particular hurry. It's funny, Dave said. I told you before. I feel kind of... The music started abruptly, almost exploded into being, and tore through the silence of the planet like the strident scream of a wounded animal. Trumpets blasted raucously. Trombones moaned and slid. Bass drums pounded a steady tattoo. Tubas, heavy and solemn like old men belching. Clarinets shrill and squealing. Cymbals clashing a military band blaring its march into the night. What? Dave's mouth hung open. He stared into the distance. 
There were lights, and the brass gleamed dully. A group of men were marching toward them, blowing on their horns, waving brilliant banners in the air. People, Cal said, and music like ours. Music just like ours. The procession spilled across the sand like an unraveling spool of brightly colored silk. Children danced on the outskirts of the group, hopping up and down, screaming in glee. Women waved banners, sang along with the band, and the music shouted out across the sand, a triumphal march with a lively beat. A fat man led the procession. He was beaming, his smile a great enameled gash across his face. The music became louder, closer, ear-shattering now. Welcome, the shouts rang out. Welcome, welcome. English, the word escaped Dave's lips in a sudden hiss. For God's sake, Cal, they're speaking English. Something's wrong, Cal said tightly. This isn't Mars. We've made a mistake, Dave. The fat man was closer now, still grinning, his stomach protruding, a gold watch hanging across his vest beneath his jacket. He wore a white carnation in his buttonhole. A Homburg black was perched solidly atop his head. They're human, Dave whispered. The fat man stopped before them, raised his hands. The music ceased as abruptly as it had begun. He stepped forward and extended his hand. Welcome home, he said. Welcome home. The words seared across Cal's mind with sudden understanding. There's some mistake, he started. Mistake? The fat man chuckled. Nonsense, nonsense. I am Mayor Panley. You're back in New Calith, gentlemen. The city is yours. The world is yours. Welcome home. You don't understand, Cal persisted. We've just come from Earth. We've just traveled more than 50 million miles through space. We're from Earth. I know, the mayor said. I know. You know? But of course. Isn't it wonderful? The crowd cheered behind him, telling the night how wonderful it was. Cal blinked, turned to Dave. The mayor put his arms about the two men. We've been watching your approach for weeks. I'll have to admit we were a little worried in the beginning. Worried? The mayor began chuckling again. Why, yes, yes. Not that we didn't think you'd make it. But there were some who, ah, here are the television trucks now. The trucks wheeled across the sand just like the thousands of trucks Cal had seen back on Earth. The television cameras pointed down at them, and the men stood behind them with earphones on. Smile, smile, the mayor whispered. Cal smiled. Dave smiled, too. Ladies and gentlemen, Mayor Panley said to the cameras, it is the distinct honor of New Caliph. The crowd raised their voices, drowning out his voice. The banners waved. Yellow, red, blue, orange. Welcome, welcome, welcome. The distinct honor of New Caliph to be able to welcome home Bobby Gallus and Gary Dale. Gallus, Dale, the voices sang. Gallus, Dale, 
Gallus Dale! Just a second, Cal interrupted. You don't understand at all. Those aren't our... Four years in space, the mayor continued. Four years among the stars. To Earth and back, fellow citizens, for the glory of Mars. You've got that twisted, Cal said. We didn't... The mayor took Cal's elbow and turned him toward the cameras. You were in space for four years, weren't you, Captain Gallus? Yes, we were, but it wasn't... Space, the mayor gushed. Limitless space. The first men to land on Earth. Again, the cries of the crowd split the night. Across the stretches of sky, the mayor continued. Across the uncharted wilderness above. Across the... There were banquets and more banquets, and women of every size and shape. The city of New Calath went all out to welcome the space travelers, Bobby Gallus and Gary Dale. At the end of a week of festivity, the mayor came to Cal and Dave. Have you enjoyed your stay, boys? he asked. It was swell, Cal said. But you've got things all... I was wondering when you planned on leaving for the capital. Don't misunderstand me. We'd like you to stay as long as you want to. But... For God's sake, Cal snapped. Will you please listen to me? Mayor Panley was visibly shaken. Why, of course, Captain Gallus, of course. Why, certainly. He lapsed into silence. I'm not Bobby Gallus, Cal said. And this isn't Gary Dale. The mayor nodded his head. You're not Gallus and Dale, he said slowly. That's right, Cal said. We didn't go to Earth. We came from there. This is the first time we've ever been on Mars. Do you understand? We're Earthmen. Earthmen. The mayor considered this for a second, and then burst out laughing. Why, that's preposterous. Absolutely preposterous. His laugh rose in volume to a bellow. Oh, you're joking. I should have known. You're only joking. We're not joking. This is all some kind of a horrible mistake. We're the first men to land on Mars. You've got to understand that, Dave pleaded. The mayor was still laughing. He walked to the door and opened it. All right, boys, have your little joke. You've earned the right to it. I'll make arrangements for you to leave for Dome City in the morning. He shook his head and chuckled again. Earthman! <laughs> and then he was gone. They sat alone in the hotel room. It looked like any Earth hotel they'd ever been in. A big, soft bed. A wall telephone. Two dressers, two armchairs. A big mirror over one of the dressers. A television set on the other dresser. This is screwy, Dave said. Is it possible we're back on Earth? Is it possible the joke is on us? Maybe everyone is just ribbing us. Maybe we've been going around in circles for four years. Maybe... No, Cal said. We're on Mars, all right. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but I've got an idea. What's that? Dave asked. Cal shrugged. Probably all wrong, of course. 
but it has something to do with comparable development of cultures on different planets. You mean Mars is in exactly the same state of development as Earth? Something like that. You know the theory. Give two different places the same materials to start with, and their cultures will run parallel to each other for the rest of their existence. Sure, Dave said. But these guys, Gallus and Dale, how the hell could we possibly be mistaken for them? I don't know. Cal leaned back on the bed and stared at the ceiling. Maybe we'll find out in Dome City. Maybe, Dave repeated hollowly. The president of the planet greeted their ship in Dome City. There were more parades, banners, bands, banquets, reporters, cameras, confetti, women, speeches, presentations. And at last, they stood before the president's desk, two bodyguards standing on either side of him. He was a thin man, slightly balding, with rimless glasses. Gentlemen, he said, I don't have to tell you how pleased I am. Cal took a deep breath. We've been trying to tell Mayor Panley, he said, that we are not Gallus and Dale. The president smiled. I know, he told me of your little joke. It's not a joke. The president cocked an eyebrow. No. He looked at his bodyguards. Has space effect... Did you feel any ill effects in space? He asked. Cal grimaced. Oh, great. Now he thinks we're psycho. Look, can't you get this through your heads? We are from Earth. We never heard of Gallison Dale. My name is Calvin Manners, and this is David Langley. Very interesting, the president said. He tapped his finger on the back of his other hand and stared at the two Earthmen. He reached over toward the intercom on his desk then and pressed a button. Yes, a woman's voice asked. Miss Daniels. Will you bring in the photos of Captain Gallus and Lieutenant Dale, please? Yes, sir. The president turned to the two men again. Those are your ranks, are they not? Yes, but we're in the United States Army. The what? The United States Army. The United States is a country on Earth. Really? Now we're getting somewhere. What else does Earth have? What is it like? Are the inhabitants intelligent? Yes, we are. We're Earthmen. Can't you understand that? I think you're carrying this joke a little too far, gentlemen. A joke is a joke, but we've spent millions of dollars on your trip. Really, this is no time for banter. Cal opened his mouth, ready to protest, just as the outside door swung wide. An attractive blonde in a smart suit stepped into the room and walked to the president's desk. She kept her eyes glued to the two Earthmen, dropped two large photographs on the desk, and turned. She stared over her shoulder at Cal and Dave until she was gone. The president smiled knowingly. The women are falling all over you two, I imagine. We're both married, Cal said dryly. We don't care for all this. Married? The president was shocked. I thought we'd distinctly chosen unmarried men for the job. Strange. 
We've got wives on earth, Dave said. Aha, the president said. Then they are intelligent beings. Pity, pity. A twinge of anticipation curled up Cal's spine. Pity? Why a pity? Why do you say that? Well, you know, surely you realize this was the only flight we could afford. What? For the meantime, anyway, we may attempt another flight in fifty years. Sixty, perhaps, maybe more. But you've already proved space travel, Captain Gallus. The achievement is ours. All we need now is money to... Damn it! I'm not Captain Gallus, Cal shouted. And we've got to get back to Earth. I've got a kid, Mr. President. He's six years old, and... Cal stopped abruptly. Oh, this is all nonsense. Why am I arguing with you? Can't you understand that we are Earthmen? What do we have to do to prove it? The President sighed and turned over the photographs on the desk. They were glossy prints of two men in uniform. They were young men, in khaki, smiles on their faces. One man looked exactly like Calvin Manners. The other strongly resembled David Langley. Here are your photographs, the President said. This is you, Captain, and you, Lieutenant. They were taken before the trip. You're younger, of course. Cal stared at the photograph. It could have been he. The nose was a little sharper, perhaps, and the face thinner. But it could have been he. It could have been he. It's a freak accident, he shouted. A coincidence in two parallel cultures. Uh, he saw the look on the president's face then. It was a cold look, and a suspicious one. Cal stopped speaking, sweat staining the armpits of his uniform shirt. The president grinned again. That's better. I understand the strain of space, gentlemen. But we must be practical, mustn't we? He paused. Shall we talk about Earth now? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The only sound was the swish of the jets against the grass as the big ship came down. Slowly, nose pointed skyward, a yellow tail streaming out behind the tubes, it settled to the ground like a cat nuzzling its haunches against a velvet pillow. In the distance, the lights of New York danced crazily. 
gleaming from a thousand spires that scratched the sky. The radios blared forth excitedly, and the police cars screamed through the night as they rushed to City Hall to pick up the mayor. Inside the ship, Gary Dale peered through the viewport. I feel kind of funny, he said. A tremor of excitement flooded through Bobby Gallus's thin frame. Earth, he whispered. We made it. Up next, a short tale about a strange entity on a distant world. Our strange story was written by Henry Cutler, and this is his first short sci-fi story on the podcast. Cutner grew up in poverty in Los Angeles after his father died when he was five. He sold his first story, The Graveyard Rats, to Weird Tales magazine in 1936. Cutner met his wife, fellow author C.L. Moore, through their association with the Lovecraft Circle, a group of writers and fans who corresponded with H.P. Lovecraft. Marion Zimmer Bradley, Roger Zelazny, Richard Matheson, and Ray Bradbury have all cited Cutner as an influence. In fact, Bradbury said that Henry Cutner actually wrote the last 300 words of Bradbury's first horror story, The Candle. Cutner contributed several stories to the Cthulhu mythos genre, including today's story. Open your January 1937 copy of Weird Tales magazine to page 93 for The Eater of Souls by Henry Cutner. They tell it in Bel Yarnak in a language not of earth that a malignant and terrible being once dwelt in that incredible abyss named the Grey Gulf of Yarnak. Not on Earth, nor on any planet that spins about any star in the skies we know, is Bel Yarnak. But beyond Betelgeuse, beyond the giant stars, on a green and joyous world, still in its lusty youth, are the towers and silver minarets of this city. Nor are the dwellers in Bel Yarnak anthropoid, nor in any way manlike. Yet there are fires during the long, warm nights in curious hearths, and wherever in this universe there are fires, there will be tales told about them, and breathless listeners to bring contentment to the heart of the teller of tales. The Sindara rules benignantly over Bel Yarnak. Yet in the old days, fear and doom lay like a shroud over the land. And in the gray gulf of Yarnak, a brooding horror dwelt loathsomely, and a strange enchantment chilled the skies and hid the triple moons behind a darkened pall. For a being had come to glut its evil hunger in the land, and those who dwelt in Bel Yarnak called it the Eater of Souls. In no wise could this being be described, for none had seen it save under circumstances which precluded the possibility of return. Yet in the gulf it brooded, and when its hungers stirred it would send forth a soundless summons, so that in tavern and temple, by fireside and in the blackness of the night, some would rise slowly, 
with a passionless look of death upon their features and would depart from Bel Yarnak toward the Grey Gulf, nor would they ever return. It was said that the thing in the gulf was half a demon and half a god, and that the souls of those whom it slew served it eternally, fulfilling strange missions in the icy wastes between the stars. This being had come from the dark sun, the hydromancers said, where it had been conceived by an unholy alliance between those timeless ancients who filter strangely between the universes and a black shining one of unknown origin. The necromancers said other things, but they hated the hydromancers, who were powerful then, and their rune-casting was generally discredited. Yet the Sindara listened to both schools of mages, and pondered upon his throne of Chalcedony, and presently determined to set forth voluntarily to the great gulf of Yarnak, which was reputed to be bottomless. The necromancers gave the Sindara curious implements made of the bones of the dead, and the hydromancers gave him intricately twisted transparent tubes of crystal, which would be useful in battling the Eater of Souls. Thereafter, the necromancers and the hydromancers squatted on their haunches in the city gate and howled dismally as the Sindara rode westward on his gorlack that fleet but repugnantly shaped reptile. After a time, the Sindara discarded both the weapons of the Hydromancers and the Necromancers, for he was a worshipper of Vorvatas, as had been each Sindara in his time. None might worship Vorvatas save the Sindara of Bel-Yarnak, for such is the god's command, and presently the Sindara dismounted from his Gorlak and prayed fervently to Vorvatas. For a time there was no response. Then the sands were troubled, and a whirling and dancing of mist motes blinded the Sindara. Out of the maelstrom the god spoke thinly, and his voice was like the tinkling of countless tiny crystal goblets. Thou goest to doom, Vorvatos said ominously. But thy son sleeps in Bel-Yarnak, and I shall have a worshipper when thou art vanished. Go, therefore, fearlessly, since God cannot conquer God, but only man who created him. Speaking thus cryptically, Orvatus withdrew, and the Sindara, after pondering, continued his journey. In time he came to that incredible abyss from which men say the nearer moon was born, and at its edge he fell prone and lay sick and shuddering, peering down in the mist-shrouded emptiness. For a cold wind blew up from the gulf, and it seemed to have no bottom. Looming far into the distance, he could just discern the further brink. Clambering up the rough stones came he whom the Sindara had set out to find. He came swiftly making use of his multiple appendages to lift himself. He was white and hairy and appallingly hideous, but his misshapen head came only to the Sindara's waist, although in girth his spidery limbs rendered a shocking illusion of hugeness. In his wake came the souls he had taken for his own, 
They were a plaintive whispering and stirring in the air, swooping and moaning and sighing for lost nirvana. The Sindara drew his blade and struck at his enemy. Of that, battle sagas are still sung, for it raged along the brink for a timeless interval of eternity. In the end, the Sindara was hacked and bleeding and spent, and his opponent was untouched and chuckling loathsomely. Then the demon prepared for his meal. Into the Sindara's mind came a whisper, the thin calling of Vorvidas. He said, there are many kinds of flesh in the universes and other compounds which are not flesh. Thus doth the eater of souls feed. And he told the Sindara of the incredible manner of that feeding, of the fusing of two beings, of the absorption of the lesser, and of the emergence therefrom of an augmented half-god, while the uncaged soul flew moaning in the train of those who served the being. Into the Sindara's mind came knowledge, and with it a grim resolve. He flung wide his arms and welcomed the ghastly embrace, for Varvatas had also spoken of the manner in which the doom might be lifted. The thing sprang to meet him, and an intolerable agony ground frightfully within the Sindara's bone and flesh. The citadel of his being rocked, and his soul cowered, shrieking in its chamber. There on the edge of the gray gulf of Yarnak, a monstrous fusion took place, a metamorphosis and a commingling that was blasphemous and horrible beyond all imagining. As a thing disappears in quicksand, so the being and the Sindara melted into each other's body. Yet even in that blinding agony, a sharper pain came to the Sindara as he saw across the plain the beauty of this land over which he had ruled. He thought he had never seen anything so beautiful as this green and joyous land of his. And a pain was in his heart. A sense of empty loss and an aching void which could not ever be filled. And he looked away to the black evil eyes of the Eater of Souls that were but inches away from his own. And he looked beyond the being to where cold emptiness lay gray and horrible. There were tears in his eyes and a gnawing ache in his heart for the silver minarets and towers of Bel Yarnak that had lain naked and beautiful beneath the glowing light of the triple moons, for he should never see that place any more. He turned his head again and for the last time blinded with his tears and with his doom upon him. As he leaped forward, he heard a frightful, despairing shriek, and then half God and man were spinning dizzily downward, seeing the precipice rushing up past them. For Vorvatus had said that thus and only thus could the spell be lifted. And the cliff wall curved inward as it swept down, so presently it receded into the dim gray haze, and the Sindara fell in empty mist and into final unstirring darkness. Our next story was written by I. M. Buckstein, although I doubt that was his name. An exhaustive search for the author 
found absolutely nothing. No, sir, we wasn't fooled by them lights in the night sky. Hallucinations, we call them. Funny, though, Willie disappeared that night. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, in October 1952, turn to page 112 for Hey Ma, Where's Willie? Just where Willie went, I ain't sure. I wonder sometimes, especially around harvest, because that is about the time we found Willie was missing. I should pine after him a little. He was my son, but somehow I never took a hankering toward Willie like I ought to. I got five other boys, a lot smarter, bigger, and nicer to look at than Willie ever was. Besides, four girls, it's as pretty as they come. But when someone disappears like Willie did, even if you don't care particularly much, you kind of wonder at times just how it came about. Willie was near about 14 or thereabouts. I never could remember for sure. He wasn't the oldest and he wasn't the youngest. But then with 10 kids and 10 ages to keep track of, a man can't be expected to remember. Anyhow, he'd be about 16 now since it was two years ago that it happened. It was a bad time for him to be skipping off, too. We were in the middle of harvest. We had corn to get in. Besides which, we had a bit of a scare around here with lights flashing in the hills and funny noises at night. The fellows who know call that sort of thing by some fancy name. Mass illusionations, I guess they'd say. Well, one night we sat down to chow. We'd worked hard all day, so we were filling ourselves as full as we could. Ma is a right good cook when she bothers, and the girls do all right by themselves. When we finish, Joey pops up. I think it was Joey. I can't rightly remember. When you got ten kids and ten names to keep track of, you're bound to have a hard time remembering. Anyhow, one of the kids pops up and says, Look, Pa, Willie's plate is all full up with chow, and no Willie. Ma looks down the row and tallies him up. Sure thing, nine kids and no Willie. I kind of wondered why Willie wasn't around. Me's usually the first to eat and the last to stop. Ma looked worried. Well, I says, pass his plate. Don't want any food to go to waste. So the plate is passed down to me. By the time it gets down the line of kids, there's one pork chop left. I eat the pork chop and forget about Willie for a while. Next morning, Joey comes up and says Willie wasn't home last night. So, I says, Willie wasn't home last night. Where's breakfast? Ma looks worried. Like I say, Ma always liked Willie. Okay, Ma, I pipes up. We'll ask the neighbors. It'd be easy to spot Willie anywhere. That's what I figured. Even though I hate to say it about my own son, Willie was plumb peculiar to look at. 
He had a head that looked like it belonged on a man a hundred pounds heavier. It sat like a knob on the end of a scrawny, skinny body, a body too scrawny to be much use in farming. He sure was dumb, too, that Willie. If you put him out to plow a straight line, he'd plow a circle. If you wanted him to plow a curve, he'd plow a zigzag line. He wasn't like the other boys. Willie got kicked out of school when he was eight. Not that the other boys finished school, but he got kicked out real disgraceful-like. Now, Benny, he set fire to the teacher's chair. Joey burned down the whole school building. But Willie, gold-dern Willie, he read all the books he could get a hold of till he knew more than the teacher. So, of course, the teacher had to kick him out to save her face. Take Willie to pull a trick like that. Asked her such fool questions that she had to close the school for a couple of months to take a rest cure. That was Willie for you. Sometimes I wonder myself why Willie don't mean as much to me as some of the other kids do. Maybe it's because I wasn't around when Willie was born. Just happened the draft, the war draft that is, called my number. That was for the Second World War. Well, anyhow, they didn't want me. I guess the government didn't want to support my kids. Don't blame them, though. I go to the city, and two weeks later I come back, and there's Willie. He's just an ordinary baby. No hair, no teeth. Kind of homely, I says to Ma. But she doesn't seem to care, so I figured I don't care either. Willie grew up, and Willie kept getting in the way. Asked all kinds of silly questions. Sure, the others always wanted to know why the grass is green, but not Willie. Willie asked some silly questions about the relative merits of transistor amplifiers as compared to vacuum tubes. That ain't all the questions he asked. But you get the idea. Willie always acted kind of big for his breeches. Ma always seemed to encourage him, too. Keep saying Willie ain't my son. I know she's kidding, of course. I reckon she means sort of like, in spirit, he ain't my son. In that respect, I agree with her. Willie sure ain't my son. Some of the kids titter when Ma says that, especially Ellie. Or was it Sue? We had another one of those mess of illusionations about that time. Sue kept talking about funny-looking men with funny-looking heads, wearing funny-looking clothes. She said they jumped out of a coffee saucer, or something like that. Just a baby, you know, with crazy notions. I never do pay any attention to these crazy ideas the kids bring up. I once read a book or something, or maybe someone told me. Kids always see things that aren't there. Just humor them and don't say nothing. So, I don't say nothing. We had a couple more kids after Willie. Three, I think it was. All nice, strong babies. I remember once Willie asked where they came from. That was the only near-normal question Willie ever asked. He found out quick enough without any help from me. Willie was like that. He found out all kinds of goofy things from Lord only knows where. Even kept telling me that it didn't matter at all what time of moon I planted the crops. Just a punk kid too big for his breeches. 
Been farming all my life, and he's telling me. To get back to the facts, we asked the folks around here if any of them had noticed the whereabouts of Willie. Someone said they'd seen him in the cornfield near the Weston farm. At least, what well, used to be the Weston farm. The same night Willie disappeared, someone, or something, rooted and burned his whole corn patch. On the whole, most people were too interested in the lights and noises they were seeing and hearing to pay any attention to Willie's getting lost. Mom missed Willie at first. He used to keep her company quite a bit. He was too scrawny to do outside work, so he used to help Ma in the house. But soon even Ma got used to the idea. Now she don't mention him no more. Don't know why I'm telling you this. Maybe it's because you're new around here and I thought you might be interested. Hey, Ma, I bought a fresh pot of coffee. This one's about gone. About Willie now, it might be the time of year that makes me think about him. It's harvest time, you know, the time Willie disappeared. Hey, Ma, tell those kids to cut the noise out there. Can't hear myself think. Now, where were we? Come to think of it, the kids are all in bed by now. Hard day harvesting. Maybe I'd better check on the noise. Want to come along? Watch your head as you go out. That stoop is kind of low. I always bang my head if I don't stop to think about it. Hey, you, what you doing in my corn? Goldern flying saucer or no goldern flying saucer. That goldern thing is ruining my crop. Hey, there's some people, or what look like people. Say, they remind me of Willie. Big heads and scrawny bodies. Well, what do you know? It's Willie. Willie, where you been? And where'd you get that get up? Tell those things you're with to get the saucer thing off my corn. Just wait till your ma sees you. She's been worried sick. Fine thing, leaving us in the middle of harvest. Hey, ma, it's Willie. Frederick Brown is known for his mastery of the super short sci-fi stories. This one is a little longer. Would you try to save your wife from a killer? seems like a simple question. But to Mandy's husband, it was one to stump the experts. We'll find our story on page 100 of Black Mask Magazine in November 1948. Cry Silence by Frederick Brown. It was that old silly argument about sound. If a tree falls deep in the forest where there's no ear to hear, is its fall silent? Is there sound where there is no ear to hear it? I've heard it argued by college professors and by street sweepers. This time it was being argued by the agent at the little railroad station and a beefy man in coveralls. It was a warm summer evening at dusk and the station agent's window opening onto the back platform of the station was open. His elbows rested on the ledge of it. The beefy man leaned against the red brick of the building. The argument between them went in circles like a droning bumblebee. I sat on a wooden bench on the platform about ten feet away. I was a stranger in town, waiting for a train that was late. There was one other man present, 
he sat on the bench beside me, between me and the window. He was a tall, heavy man, with a face like granite, an uncompromising kind of face, and huge, rough hands. He looked like a farmer in his town clothes. I wasn't interested in either the argument or the man beside me. I was wondering only how late that damn train would be. I didn't have my watch. It was being repaired in the city. And from where I sat, I couldn't see the clock inside the station. The tall man beside me was wearing a wristwatch, and I asked him what time it was. He didn't answer. You've got the picture, haven't you? Four of us, three on the platform and the agent, leaning out of the window. The argument between the agent and the beefy man. On the bench, the silent man and I. I got up off the bench and looked into the open door of the station. It was 7.40. The train was 12 minutes overdue. I sighed and lighted a cigarette. I decided to stick my nose into the argument. It wasn't any of my business. But I knew the answer, and they didn't. Pardon me for butting in, I said. But you're not arguing about sound at all. You're arguing semantics. I expected one of them to ask me what semantics was. But the station agent fooled me. He said, that's a study of words, isn't it? In a way, you're right, I guess. All the way, I insisted. If you look up sound in the dictionary, you'll find two meanings listed. One of them is the vibration of a medium, usually air, within a certain range. And the other is the effect of such vibrations on the ear. That isn't the exact wording, but the general idea. Now, by one of those definitions, the sound, the vibration, exists whether there's an ear around to hear it or not. By the other, the vibrations aren't sound unless there is an ear to hear them. So, you're both right. It's just a matter of which meaning you use for the word sound. The beefy man said, Maybe you got something there. He looked back at the agent. Let's call it a draw then, Joe. I gotta get home. So long. He stepped off the platform and went around the station. I asked the agent, Any report on the train? Nope, he said. He leaned a little farther out the window and looked to his right, and I saw a clock in a steeple about a block away that I hadn't noticed before. Ought to be along soon, though, he grinned at me. Expert on sound, huh? Well, I said, I wouldn't say that. But I did happen to look it up in the dictionary. I know what it means. Uh-huh. Well, let's take that second definition and say sound is sound only if there's an ear to hear it. A tree crashes in the forest and there's only a deaf man there. Is there any sound? I guess not, I said. Not if you consider sound as subjective. Not if it's got to be heard. I happened to glance to my right at the tall man who hadn't answered my question about the time. He was still staring straight ahead. Lowering my voice a bit, I asked the station agent, Is he deaf? Him? Bill Myers? He chuckled. There was something odd in the sound of that chuckle. Mister? Nobody knows. That's what I was going to ask you next. If that tree falls down and there's a man near, but nobody knows if he's deaf or not, is there any sound? 
His voice had gone up in volume. I stared at him, puzzled, wondering if he was a little crazy or if he was just trying to keep up the argument by thinking up screwy loopholes. I said, Then if nobody knows if he's deaf, nobody knows if there was any sound. He said, You're wrong, mister. That man would know whether he heard it or not. Maybe the tree would know, wouldn't it? And maybe other people would know, too. I don't get your point, I told him. What are you trying to prove? Murder, mister. You just got up from sitting next to a murderer. I stared at him again, but he didn't look crazy. Far off, a train whistled faintly. I said, I don't understand you. The guy sitting on the bench, he said, Bill Myers, he murdered his wife, her and his hired man. His voice was quite loud. I felt uncomfortable. I wish that far train was a lot nearer. I didn't know what went on here, but I knew I'd rather be on the train. Out of the corner of my eye, I looked at the tall man with the granite face and the big hands. He was still staring out across the tracks. Not a muscle in his face had moved. The station agent said, I'll tell you about it, mister. I like to tell people about it. His wife was a cousin of mine, a fine woman. Mandy Eppard, her name was. Before she married that skunk, he was mean to her. Dirt mean. Know how mean a man can be to a woman who's helpless? She was 17 when she was fool enough to marry him seven years ago. She was 24 when she died last spring. She'd done more work than most women do in a lifetime out on that farm of his. He worked her like a horse and treated her like a slave. And her religion wouldn't let her divorce him or even leave him. See what I mean, mister? I cleared my throat, but there didn't seem to be anything to say. He didn't need prodding or comment. He went on. So how can you blame her, mister, for loving a decent guy, a clean young feller her own age when he fell in love with her? Just loving him, that's all. I'd bet my life on that because I knew Mandy. Oh, they talked and they looked at each other. I wouldn't gamble too much. There wasn't a stolen kiss now and then. But nothing to kill them for, mister. I felt uneasy. I wish the train would come and get me out of this. I had to say something, though. The agent was waiting. I said, even if there had been, the unwritten law is out of date. Right, mister. I'd said the right thing. But you know what that bastard sitting over there did? He went deaf. Huh? I said. He went deaf. He came in town to see the doc and said he'd been having earaches and couldn't hear anymore. Was afraid he was going deaf. Doc gave him some stuff to try, and you know where he went from the doc's office? I didn't try to guess. Sheriff's office, he said. Told the sheriff he wanted to report his wife and his hired man were missing, see? Smart of him, wasn't it? Swore out a complaint and said he'd prosecute if they were found. But he had an awful lot of trouble getting any of the questions the sheriff asked. Sheriff got tired of yelling and wrote him down on paper. Smart. See what I mean? Not exactly, I said. Hadn't his wife run away? He'd murdered her. 
and him, or rather he was murdering them, must have taken a couple of weeks about. Found them a month later. He glowered, his face black with anger. In the smokehouse, he said. A new smokehouse made out of concrete and not used yet, with a padlock on the outside of the door. He'd walked through the farmyard one day about a month before, he said, after their bodies were found, and noticed the padlock wasn't locked, just hanging in the hook, not even through the hasp. See, just to keep the padlock from being lost or swiped, he slips it through the hasp and snaps it. My God, I said, and they were in there? They starved to death? Thirst kills you quicker if you haven't either water or food. Oh, they tried hard to get out, all right. Scraped halfway through the door with a piece of concrete he'd worked loose. It was a thick door. I figure they yelled after a while. I figure they hammered on that door plenty. Was there sound, mister, with only a deaf man living near that door, passing it twenty times a day? Again, he chuckled humorlessly. He said, Your train will be along soon. That was it, you heard whistle. It stops up by the water tower. It'll be here in ten minutes. And without changing his tone of voice, except that his tone got louder again, he said, It was a bad way to die, even if he was right in killing them. Only a black-hearted son of a gun would have done it that way. Don't you think so? I said, but are you sure he is deaf? Sure he's deaf. Can't you picture him standing there in front of that padlock door, listening with his deaf ears to the hammering inside and the yelling? Sure he's deaf. That's why I can say all this to him, yell it in his ear. If I'm wrong, he can't hear me. But he can hear me. He comes here to hear me. I had to ask it. Why? Why would he, if you're right? I'm helping him, that's why. I'm helping him to make up his black mind, to hang a rope from the grating in the top of that smokehouse, and dangle from it. He hasn't got the guts to, yet. So every time he's in town, he sits on the platform a while to rest. And I tell him what a murdering son of a gun he is. He spat toward the tracks. He said, there are a few of us know the score, not the sheriff. He wouldn't believe us, said it would be too hard to prove. The scrape of feet behind me made me turn. The tall man with the huge hands and the granite face was standing up now. He didn't look toward us. He started for the steps. The agent said, he'll hang himself pretty soon now. He wouldn't come here and sit like that for any other reason, would he, mister? Unless, I said, he is deaf. Sure, he could be. See what I meant? If a tree falls and the only man there to hear it is maybe deaf and maybe not, is it silent or isn't it? Well, I gotta get the mail pouch ready. I turned and looked at the tall figure walking away from the station. He walked slowly, and his shoulders, big as they were, seemed a little stooped. The clock in the steeple a block away began to strike for eight o'clock. 
The tall man lifted his wrist to look at the watch on it. I shuddered a little. It could have been coincidence, sure. And yet a little chill went down my spine. The train pulled in, and I got aboard. We heard from Fritz Leiber only a week ago with The Black U. Now he's back with a very unusual story. This is how it all began. The terrible civil strife that devastates our world. Turn to page 57 in the debut issue of Worlds of Tomorrow magazine in April 1963 for X Marks the Pedwalk by Fritz Leiber. Based in material in Chapter 7, First Clashes of the Wheeled and Footed Sex, of Volume 3 of Berger's monumental History of Traffic, published by the Foundation for 22nd Century Studies. The raggedy little old lady with the big shopping bag was in the exact center of the crosswalk when she became aware of the big black car bearing down on her. Behind the thick, bulletproof glass, its seven occupants had a misty look, like men in a diving bell. She saw there was no longer time to beat the car to either curb. Veering remorselessly, it would catch her in the gutter. Useless to attempt a feint and double back, such as any venturesome child executed a dozen times a day. Her reflexes were too slow. Polite, vacuous laughter came from the car's loudspeaker over the engine's mounting roar. From her fellow pedestrians lining the curbs came a sigh of horror. The little old lady dipped into her shopping bag and came up with a big blue-black automatic. She held it in both fists, riding the recoils like a rodeo cowboy on a bucking bronco. Aiming at the base of the windshield, just as a big game hunter aims at the vulnerable spine of a charging water buffalo over the horny armor of its lowered head, the little old lady squeezed off three shots before the car chewed her down. From the right-hand curb, a young woman in a wheelchair shrieked an obscenity at the car's occupants. Smythe de Winter, the driver, wasn't happy. The little old lady's last shot had taken two members of his carpool. Bursting through the laminated glass, the steel-jacketed slug had traversed the neck of Phipps McKeith and buried itself in the skull of Horvendile Harker. Breaking viciously, Smythe de Winter rammed the car over the right-hand curb. Pedestrians scattered into entries and narrow arcades, among them a youth bounding high on crutches. But Smythe the winner got the girl in the wheelchair. Then he drove rapidly out of the slum ring into the suburbs, a shred of rattan swinging from the flange of his right fore mudguard for a trophy. Despite the two-for-two two casualty list, he felt angry and depressed. The secure, predictable world around him seemed to be crumbling. While his companion softly keened a dirge to Horvey and Phipps and quietly mopped up their blood, he frowned and shook his head. They oughtn't to let old ladies carry magnums, he murmured. Witherspoon Hobbs nodded agreement across the front seat corpse. 
They oughtn't to let them carry anything. God, how I hate feet, he muttered, looking down at his shrunken legs. Wheels forever, he softly cheered. The incident had immediate repercussions throughout the city. At the combined wake of the little old lady and the girl in the wheelchair, a fiery-tongued speaker invade against the white-walled fascists of suburbia, telling to his hearers the fabled wonders of old Los Angeles, where pedestrians were sacrosanct, even outside crosswalks. He called for a hobnail march across the nearest lawn bowling alleys, and perambulator traversed golf courses of the motorists. At the Sunnyside Crematorium, to which the bodies of Phipps and Horvey had been conveyed, an equally impassioned and rather more grammatical order reminded his listeners of the legendary justice of old Chicago, where pedestrians were forbidden to carry small arms, and anyone with one foot off the sidewalk was fair prey. He broadly hinted that a holocaust, primed if necessary with a few tankfuls of gasoline, was the only cure for the slums. Bands of skinny youths came loping at dusk out of the slum ring into the innermost sections of the larger donut of the suburbs, slashing defenseless tires, shooting expensive watchdogs, and scrawling filthy words on the pristine panels of matrons' runabouts, which never ventured more than six blocks from home. Simultaneously, Squadrons of young suburban motorcycles and scooterites roared through the outermost precincts of the slum ring, harrying children off sidewalks, tossing stink bombs through second-story tenement windows, and defacing hovel fronts with sprays of black paint. Incident, a thrown brick, a cut corner, monster tacks in the portico of the auto club were even reported from the center of the city, traditionally neutral territory. The government hurriedly acted, suspending all traffic between the center and the suburbs and establishing a 24-hour curfew in the slum ring. Government agents moved only by centipede car and pogo hopper to underline the point that they favored neither contending side. The day of enforced non-movement for feed and wheels was spent in furtive, vengeful preparations. Behind locked garage doors, machine guns that fired through the nose ornament were mounted under hoods. Illegal scythe blades were welded to oversized hubcaps, and the stainless steel edges of flange fenders were honed to razor sharpness. While nervous National Guardsmen hopped about the deserted sidewalks of the slum ring, grim-faced men and women wearing black armbands moved through the webwork of secret tunnels and hidden doors distributing heavy-caliber small arms and spike-studded paving blocks, piling cobblestones on strategic rooftops, and sapping upward from the secret tunnels to create car traps. Children got ready to soap intersections after dark. The Committee of Pedestrian Safety, sometimes known as Robespierre's Rats, prepared to release its two carefully hoarded anti-tank guns. At nightfall, under the tireless urging of the government, representatives of the pedestrians and the motorists met on a huge safety island at the boundary of the slum ring and the suburbs. Underlings began a noisy dispute as to whether Smythe de Winter had failed to give a courtesy honk before charging. 
whether the little old lady had opened fire before the car had come within honking distance, how many wheels of Smythe D's car had been on the sidewalk when he hit the girl in the wheelchair, and so on. After a little while, the high pedestrian and the chief motorist exchanged cautious winks and drew aside. The red writhing of a hundred kerosene flares and the mystic yellow pulsing of a thousand firefly lamps mounted on yellow sawhorses ranged around the safety island illumined two tragic, strained faces. A word before we get down to business, the chief motorist whispered. What's the current SQ of your adults? Forty-one and dropping, the high pedestrian replied, his eyes fearfully searching from side to side for eavesdroppers. I can hardly get aides who are halfway compass mentis. Our own safety quotient is thirty-seven, the chief motorist revealed. He shrugged hopelessly. The wheels inside my people's heads are slowing down. I do not think they will be speeded up in my lifetime. I say government's only fifty-two the other said with a matching shrug. Well, I suppose we must scrape out one more compromise, the one suggested hollowly. Though I must confess, there are times when I think we're all the figments of a paranoid's dream. Two hours of concentrated deliberations produced the new wheel-foot articles of agreement. Among other points, pedestrian handguns were limited to a slightly lower muzzle velocity and to thirty-eight caliber and under, while motorists were required to give three honks at one block distance before charging a pedestrian in a crosswalk. Two wheels over the curb changed a traffic kill from third-degree manslaughter to petty homicide. Blind pedestrians were permitted to carry hand grenades. Immediately, the government went to work. The new wheel-foot articles were loudspeakered and posted. Detachments of police and psychiatric social hoppers sent a pedaled and pogoed through the slum ring, seizing outsized weapons and giving tranquilizing jet injections to the unruly. Teams of hypnotherapists and mechanics scuttled from home to home in the suburbs and from garage to garage, enchanting a conformist serenity and stripping illegal armament from cars. On the advice of a rogue psychiatrist, who said it would channel off aggressions, a display of bullfighting was announced. But this had to be canceled when a strong protest was lodged by the Decency League, which had a large mixed wheel-foot membership. At dawn, curfew was lifted in the slum ring, and traffic reopened between the suburbs and the center. After a few uneasy moments, it became apparent that the status quo had been restored. Smythe de Winter tooled his gleaming black machine along the ring. A thick steel bolt with a large steel washer on either side neatly filled the hole the little old lady's slug had made in the windshield. A brick bounced off the roof. Bullets pattered against the side windows. Smythe D ran a handkerchief around his neck under his collar and smiled. A block ahead, children were darting into the street, catcalling and thumbing their noses. Behind one of them limped a fat dog with a spiked collar. Smythe D. suddenly gunned his motor. He didn't hit any of the children, but he got the dog. 
A flashing light on the dash showed him the right front tire was losing pressure. Must have hit the collar as well. He thumbed the matching emergency air button and the flashing stopped. He turned toward Witherspoon Hobbs and said with thoughtful satisfaction, I like a normal, orderly world, where you always have a little success, but not champagne heady. A little failure, but just enough to brace you. Witherspoon Hobbs was squinting at the next crosswalk. Its center was discolored by a brownish stain, ribbon-tracked by tires. That's where you bagged the little old lady, Smythe D., he remarked. I'll say this for her now. She had spirit. Yes, that's where I bagged her, Smythe D. agreed flatly. He remembered wistfully the witch-like face growing rapidly larger, her jerking shoulders in black bombazine, the wild white-circled eyes. He suddenly found himself feeling that this was a very dull day. Last, but certainly not least, we turn to Robert Sheckley, who made his debut on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast just two days ago. We'll find our story on page 19 of the October-November issue of Amazing Stories magazine. When people talk about getting away from it all, they are usually thinking about our great open spaces out west. But to science fiction writers, that would be practically in the heart of Times Square. When a man of the future wants solitude, he picks a slab of rock floating in space four light years west of Andromeda. Here is a gentle little story about a man who sought the solitude of such a location. And who did he take along for company? None other than Charles the Robot. Beside Still Waters by Robert Sheckley. Mark Rogers was a prospector and he went to the asteroid belt looking for radioactives and rare metals. He searched for years, never finding much, hopping from fragment to fragment. After a time, he settled on a slab of rock half a mile thick. Rogers had been born old, and he didn't age much past a point. His face was white with the pallor of space, and his hands shook a little. He called his slab of rock Martha, after no girl he had ever known. He made a little strike, enough to equip Martha with an air pump and a shack, a few tons of dirt and some water tanks, and a robot. Then he settled back and watched the stars. The robot he bought was a standard model all-around worker, with built-in memory and a 30-word vocabulary. Mark added to that, bit by bit, he was something of a tinkerer, and he enjoyed adapting his environment to himself. At first, all the robot could say was, Yes, sir, and No, sir. He could state simple problems. The air pump is laboring, sir. The corn is budding, sir. He could perform a satisfactory salutation. Good morning, sir. Mark changed that. He eliminated the sirs from the robot's vocabulary. Equality was the rule on Mark's hunk of rock. Then he dubbed the robot Charles after a father he had never known. As the years passed, the air pump began to labor a little as it converted the oxygen in the planetoid's rock into a breathable atmosphere. 
The air seeped into space, and the pump worked a little harder, supplying more. The crops continued to grow on the tamed black dirt of the planetoid. Looking up, Mark could see the sheer blackness of the river of space, the floating points of the stars. Around him, under him, overhead, masses of rock drifted, and sometimes the starlight glinted from their black sides. Occasionally, Mark caught a glimpse of Mars or Jupiter. Once, he thought he saw Earth. Mark began to tape new responses into Charles. He added simple responses to cue words. When he said, how does it look? Charles would answer, oh, pretty good, I guess. At first, the answers were what Mark had been answering himself in the long dialogue held over the years. But slowly, he began to build a new personality into Charles. Mark had always been suspicious and scornful of women. But for some reason, he didn't tape the same suspicion into Charles. Charles's outlook was quite different. What do you think of girls? Mark would ask, sitting on a packing case outside the shack after the chores were done. Oh, I don't know. You have to find the right one. The robot would reply dutifully, repeating what had been put on its tape. I never saw a good one yet, Mark would say. Well, that's not fair. Perhaps you didn't look long enough. There's a girl in the world for every man. You're a romantic, Mark would say scornfully. The robot would pause, a built-in pause, and chuckle a carefully constructed chuckle. I dreamed of a girl named Martha once. Charles would say. Maybe if I looked, I would have found her, and then it would be bedtime. Or perhaps Mark would want more conversation. What do you think of girls? He would ask again, and the discussion would follow its same course. Charles grew old. His limbs lost their flexibility, and some of his wiring started to corrode. Mark would spend hours keeping the robot in repair. You're getting rusty, he would cackle. You're not so young yourself, Charles would reply. He had an answer for almost everything, nothing involved but an answer. It was always night on Martha, but Mark broke up his time into mornings, afternoons, and evenings. Their life followed a simple routine, breakfast from vegetables and Mark's canned store. Then the robot would work in the fields, and the plants grew used to his touch. Mark would repair the pump, check the water supply, and straighten up the immaculate shack. Lunch and the robot's chores were usually finished. The two would sit on the packing case and watch the stars. They would talk until supper, and sometimes late into the endless night. In time, Mark built more complicated conversations into Charles. He couldn't give the robot free choice, of course, but he managed a pretty close approximation of it. Slowly, Charles's personality emerged, but it was strikingly different from Mark's. Where Mark was querulous, Charles was calm. Mark was sardonic. Charles was naive. Mark was a cynic. Charles was an idealist. Mark was often sad. Charles was forever content. And in time, Mark forgot he had built the answers into Charles. He accepted the robot as a friend of about his own age. 
a friend of long years standing. The thing I don't understand, Mark would say, is why a man like you wants to live here. I mean, it's all right for me. No one cares about me, and I never gave much of a damn about anyone. But why you? Here I have a whole world, Charles would reply, where on earth I had to share with billions. I have the stars, bigger and brighter than on earth. I have all space around me, close, like still waters. And I have you, Mark. Now, don't go getting sentimental on me. I am not. Friendship counts. Love was lost long ago, Mark. The love of a girl named Martha, whom neither of us ever met. And that's a pity. But friendship remains, and the eternal night. You're a bloody poet, Mark would say, half admiringly. A poor poet. Time passed unnoticed by the stars, and the air pump hissed and clanked and leaked. Mark was fixing it constantly, but the air of Martha became increasingly rare. Although Charles labored in the fields, the crops, deprived of sufficient air, died. Mark was tired now, and barely able to crawl around, even without the grip of gravity. He stayed in his bunk most of the time. Charles fed him as best he could, moving on rusty, creaking limbs. What do you think of girls? I never saw a good one yet. Well, that's not fair. Mark was too tired to see the end coming, and Charles wasn't interested. But the end was on its way. The air pump threatened to give out momentarily. There hadn't been any food for days. But why you? gasping in the escaping air, strangling. Here, I have a whole world. Don't get sentimental. And the love of a girl named Martha. From his bunk, Mark saw the stars for the last time. Big, bigger than ever, endlessly floating in the still waters of space. The stars, Mark said. Yes, the sun shall shine as now, a bloody poet, a poor poet, and girls. I dreamed of a girl named Martha once, maybe if, what do you think of girls, and stars, and earth? And it was bedtime, this time forever. Charles stood beside the body of his friend. He felt for a pulse once, and allowed the withered hand to fall. He walked to a corner of the shack and turned off the tired air pump. The tape that Mark had prepared had a few cracked inches left to run. I hope he finds his Martha, the robot croaked, and then the tape broke. His rusted limbs would not bend, and he stood frozen, staring back at the naked stars. Then he bowed his head. The Lord is my shepherd, Charles said. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me. In two days on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, only Shervain dared to learn the mind-shattering truth of that incredible barrier. The Wall of Darkness by Arthur C. Clarke. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. 
with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode.